Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I did want to get to this issue, though, because... You know, certainly there, there's been a lot of debate for a long time about language laws in Quebec and the extent to which uh, Quebec is prepared to go uh, to defend the French language. But this latest twist raises some some interesting issues here. So this concerns what's known as uh, Bill 96 in Quebec and the extent to which this might affect the Constitution. So here's one story this week. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Tuesday that Quebec can unilaterally modify part of the Constitution. The province's proposed language law reform introduced last week seeks to change part of the Constitution to affirm that Quebec is a nation and that its official language is French. Quote from the Prime Minister here, It is perfectly legitimate for a province to modify the section of the Constitution that applies specifically to them, and that is something they can do while ensuring, of course, that the rest of the Constitution, including the sections that protect linguistic minorities like Anglophones in Quebec, continue to be respected. Now, I suppose there's some politics at play here, but there's also some important constitutional questions. Can Quebec do this, for one? What are the implications of that? So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, all of this, we're pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Emmett McFarlane, who's uh, Associate Chair of Graduate Studies, also Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. He's also uh, author of the book, Constitutional Pariah, looking at the uh, issue of Senate reform. Professor McFarlane, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, like I say, I mean, there's there's some politics probably baked into this conversation here, as, as certainly as it pertains to the federal government. But what do you see as, as the relevant constitutional issues here? Well, what Quebec is purporting to do is to add provisions to the national or federal constitution unilaterally. And our constitution has a mending formula, uh, a complicated one that has several different procedures uh, for amendment depending on what is being amended. Uh, Quebec is proposing to use the unilateral provincial procedure, and it's, it's Section 45 of the Act that, that says provinces are free to amend their own constitutions. Que- Quebec is playing a bit of a tricky game here because our, one of our early founding documents, the Con- Constitution Act of 1867, has a section titled Provincial Constitutions. And so Quebec is saying, well, the amending formula says we can amend provincial constitutions. Therefore, we can add these provisions to the Provincial Constitution section of the 1867 Act. The problem with that is that the section in the Constitution Act is not the same thing as the Provincial Constitutions. Provincial constitutions are made up of different ordinary statutes at the provincial level and unwritten constitutional conventions. 
they are not singular documents the way, say, the American Constitution is. They, uh, they control, basically, the internal machinery of government in a province. So provinces are free to make changes to their own legislatures, to the, the way their own governments operate, to their electoral systems. Even something like the Quebec Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, which is a, a regular statute in, in, under Quebec law, is part of its provincial constitution. Um, what, what the province can't do, though, is make changes to the text of the national constitution, the Constitution of Canada. Uh, the procedure simply doesn't allow it. And in fact, there are various sections of the federal constitution that would explicitly block Quebec from inserting the language provision, for example. So, so another part of the amending procedure uh, says that any changes to the, the use of English or French in the provinces can only be amended with the consent of Parliament, the, the federal House and Senate. Um, so what's really concerning here is not just that Quebec is seeking to, to affect this unilateral change to the national constitution, but that none of the federal leaders from the prime minister on down are willing to state the obvious, that this is not permitted. And it goes to the legitimacy and to the heart of democracy and the rule of law in a constitutional system of government. Um, who gets to write the rules of the constitution yeah. is a fundamentally important power. And it's, it's an abdication of the prime minister to, to refuse to defend it. Which brings us to the politics of all of this. But but yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, that's that's the reason why it's supposed to be difficult to amend the Constitution. We have a formula in place for a reason, and it just seems as though we, we've kind of tossed that aside here. Yeah, and so, I mean, let me give a couple of examples of, of past practice that really shows this in action, right? So Newfoundland changed its name to Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, Clearly, what a province calls itself should be part of its provincial constitution. And so Newfoundland is free to do that. But in order to get that change recognized in the national constitution, Newfoundland used the bilateral amending procedure. It had the consent of the federal House and Senate. Um, so these, these changes Quebec is proposing, including recognizing Quebecers as a nation, something that this country debated intensely in the 80s and 90s, when, at least when relating to the so-called distinct society clause of the Constitution. Um, Quebec is, is basically saying it can impose recognition on behalf of the rest of the country in the Canadian Constitution unilaterally. So suddenly the, the debates over the Meech Lake Accord were, were apparently completely pointless because Quebec could have done this all along. That simply makes no sense to me. So what about the notion of, that Quebec is going to recognize itself as a nation? Can, can they do that, and does that necessarily involve the Constitution? Yeah, and so the, the irony of all of this, and of course this is a... a, 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 a political gambit on the part of uh, Premier Legault, in that Quebec is absolutely free to pass a law in its legislature 
that that declares itself a nation in the in the sociological sense um, a lot of a lot of people use the terms nation as equivalent to country that that can't possibly be what this means of course Quebec is not declaring unilateral secession um, by nation it means uh, the sociological kind of imagined community people of a shared culture and language occupying a shared territory and if they want to if they want to enact that if they want to recognize themselves as that they're free to do so even in provincial law what they are not free to do is impose it as a as a constitutional amendment on the rest of the country in the national or federal constitution and i think that's that's the the key distinction here right no one none of the the federal politicians seem to be objecting to the idea and if that's the case, why not follow the proper procedure? Why not pursue the bilateral amending process and pass resolutions by the House and the Senate? And then if, if for some reason this has to be constitutionally entrenched, it will be. Um, but the legitimacy of the process matters here. It matters a lot. Now, like, and, and it's not for me to sit here and, and comment on, you know, the, the state of the French language and if there are concerns about, you know, the, the French language or the need to protect the French language in Quebec. I mean, that's a conversation for, for Quebecers to have. But is, I mean, is, is this even necessary in the sense of having to go as far as Quebec is proposing? If there are concerns about protecting French language, why, why do we have to drag the Constitution into it? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's necessary, and certainly the other other aspects of Bill 96 might be very controversial for minority Anglophones in in the province. Uh, Quebec is implementing this with the notwithstanding clause, which allows allows the legislature to temporarily bring laws into effect notwithstanding certain sections of the charter. Um, so it's it's already immunizing some of the other policy measures from review under the Charter of Rights. Um, I, I don't know that these constitutional provisions are necessary. What they, might, what they might hope is that it could influence subsequent judicial interpretation. So you recognize Quebec as a nation, you recognize French as the only language, and then when there's later on a Charter of Rights challenge by an Anglophone minority who feels that their free expression has been infringed, the, the Quebec government can point to, well, look, the Constitution recognizes us as a nation. It recognizes the primacy of French. So this is a reasonable limit. And maybe the courts say, yes, you're right. We need to be more deferential to Quebec language policy even when it violates rights, because these other constitutional provisions are there. That's, that's a plausible scenario. Um, I don't think it's inevitable. It depends on how the court approaches it. Um, but that could be part of the ballgame here. Well, it, I mean, is that to say then, and maybe it's, it's short-sighted in terms of, you know, the French language and bilingualism in Canada, could another province do the same thing and say we're a nation and, and English is the official language of this nation? I mean, if this goes forward and it is allowed to proceed and it goes unchallenged or somehow a court upholds these amendments as legitimate, then, yeah, it would mean any province could make amendments to nominally their provincial constitutions. And as long as those amendments didn't, you know, fly in the face of other existing provisions like the division of powers and who, whether the federal government has a power over something versus the provinces, it could lead to all sorts of absurd additions to the national constitution. It could end up really balkanizing 
this country, which is already one of the most decentralized federations in the world. Um, and I, I feel like this puts even further kind of uh, centripe- centrifugal forces on, on the federation if, if, if it becomes a slippery slope. Um, I'm more inclined to think and hope that someone will raise a, a challenge to this and it'll be stopped, whether that's through litigation or, or otherwise. Well, yeah, I mean, is this destined to end up before the courts? I mean, you know, regardless of the politics, if there's some pretty straightforward legal and constitutional principles, that, that seems like a logical place to resolve this. Yeah, I mean, the, more, the most straightforward way would be the, the federal government could refer this directly to the Supreme Court and simply ask the Supreme Court whether this would be a valid constitutional amendment under this particular amending procedure. We've seen this even in recent years with Senate reform, with the, with the, with the failed Harper appointment of a Supreme Court justice. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like Justin Trudeau it, it wants the fight because he seems more concerned about his party's fate in Quebec in the next federal election than he is about upholding the Constitution. Now, another way to do it would be that any one of the provinces could also refer the question to their provincial court of appeal, and theoretically, it could then be appealed up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and we could have a resolution on the issue that way. Um, I think the third way is any organization or citizen in Canada could seek out public interest standing to to challenge the, the this amendment in in a court of law. Of course, that takes money and time, um, which not a lot of people have. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Well, we'll leave it there for now, and I guess we'll see where this all goes from here. But certainly appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me. All the best. That is Emmett McFarland at the University of Waterloo, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science, Associate Chair Graduate Studies, and uh, author of a recently released uh, book looking at some of the constitutional issues around Senate reform. That book is called Constitutional Pariah. So there it is. I mean, maybe that's the easiest way to respond is to say, hey, guess what? We're a nation, too. That's why this seems remarkably short-sighted on Quebec's part. The idea that you need to protect French in Quebec. What are the implications for French in the rest of the country? Andrew Coyne of the Globe and Mail today has some interesting observations on that. Like, for example, the proportion of Quebecers whose mother tongue is French has declined slightly from 81% in 96 to 79% in 2016. But you look at other trends. uh, For example... Standard indicators, the language spoken most often at home or at work, for example, show no discernible trend. Perhaps most significantly, the share of Quebec's population that can speak French is at an all-time high, 95%. The real concern here, I think, is for English-speaking Quebecers, for Anglophones in that province, and their rights being trampled, and Quebec hiding behind the notwithstanding clause and these other constitutional tricks. So yes, we should be concerned about Anglo rights in Quebec, and Quebec should maybe spare a thought uh, for Francophones in the rest of the country. Is it worth it if it means an end to bilingualism everywhere else? Now, maybe there are those out here who say, yeah, good riddance to bilingualism. Well, you know, from Quebec's perspective, let's just be careful what you wish for. Much more still to get to you this afternoon, but I want to take a look back in at uh, some of the controversy around the government's Bill C-10. 
And, and this is a bill that is ostensibly aimed at updating the Broadcasting Act, but it's very much become a debate and a conversation around how and whether and to what extent the government can regulate the Internet. I mean, I think an argument can be made that, you know, the, the lines of what constitutes a broadcaster have been blurred and that traditional broadcasters and, you know, tech companies like Netflix or Spotify or Amazon are, are very much competing in the same realm even if regulations aren't evenly applied. So that's sort of the starting point for all of this, but it feels as though this has all gone in a very weird direction. And it goes back to April when an exemption that was put into the bill to make it clear that we're not talking about content generated by users was removed. And so now all of a sudden that was on the table that either the CRTC would have purview over user-generated content, or we could force these companies to display or regulate themselves this content in a certain way, it seemed to get us pretty far from the original conversation. And it did get us into the realm, I think, of whether there are some legitimate concerns about the impact on free speech and free expression. So that's where we're at right now. The Heritage Committee is uh, going sort of line by line through this uh, bill. And there's numerous amendments that have been proposed and debated. We did have some testimony this week from the Justice Ministers trying to allay concerns about the constitutionality of all of this and the impact on free speech. And his finding that it doesn't impact charter rights. But should we still be concerned? Well, someone who's been uh, following all of this, Dr. Emily Laidlaw, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law. Dr. Laidlaw, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So a lot of twists and turns in this story. I mean, have we managed to make any progress here, do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I find it's become all-consuming, as I'm sure many have. And um, I don't know if we've gotten any further along. It seems to me that um, all that's happened is it's become deeply politicized and, and people have become entrenched in position in kind of a mm -hmm. particular viewpoint. And, and what we have um, on our plate, though, are some very real policy questions about the future of broadcasting that need to be figured out. Because it feels to me, like I said in the introduction, that we've, we've really drifted away from some of those important policy conversations. Is that your sense? Yeah, and I, I think we have, and, um, and and it's not in any way to uh, diminish the importance of um, of the problem, the free speech problems with removing Section Four Point One. I think that um, that is still central to my concerns, and uh, and it's also what it did is it highlighted just the problems with this bill that maybe it hasn't been thought through sufficiently. And um, and the line by line at this stage isn't even sufficient. That they need to kind of go back, think through what it is that there's, you know, what the objective is of this of updating uh, broadcasting legislation at this stage. Right, and I think that that speaks to where there's been some communication challenges here, and maybe it's a combination of the two. You know, poorly thought out legislation and poor communication. Uh, what about that side of it? Yeah, well, and we saw that today. I don't know. Um, if you've seen, but uh, an access to information request was revealing that there's all kinds of, of platforms that are the target of this particular regulation. And so, you know, one of the things I would love to talk about is the fact that social media and user-generated content is now, now would be treated, you know, as, as 
regulated under this new broadcasting legislation. Um, but the other is that there's all kinds of services that would be implicated. It's it's um, not just Netflix. It's not just Spotify. Think of podcasts or some of the workout apps that you use or some of the yeah. different streaming services. Um, you know, potentially all of this is going to be regulated as is broadcasting and and one of the things i want to emphasize to, to listeners is it's not that this space shouldn't be regulated it's that broadcasting regulation is a it's a very specific type of regulation it's it's much more heavy-handed than other types mm-hmm. of media regulation and, and why is that well I, historically you know tv and radio it was seen as this kind of push media, right? It's pushed yeah. into your homes. And, uh, and there was issues of spectrum scarcity. And so it, mm-hmm. it justified um, heavier regulations, um, you know, to, to promote, um, and rightly so, the objective of, of protecting, you know, our culture, of, of promoting Canadian content, of even often, you know, upholding certain um, kind of civility and offensiveness for, requirements that that they don't exist in other areas so much more lightly regulated would be for example newspapers so we look at what what uh, bill c10 could encompass and as you say i mean and and some of these um the, the information that's come to light out so michael geist of the university of ottawa had been tweeting about some of this uh like you mentioned workout apps you know we think of uh, services like peloton where you're live streaming with with trainers even the possibility and this could get rather awkward that um Adult websites, you know, you think of Pornhub, which is actually a company based in Canada, that we're going to get into that realm as as well. This this all gets us to um, a bit of a weird place, doesn't it? Well, and then there'd be two types, right? So there would be the regulation of um, of platforms that are producing their own content. And in many ways, those are competing with traditional broadcasters. And so the requirements might be that, um, you know, even for adult services, that, that they need a certain amount of, of Canadian content. And, um, but when it comes to, say, something like, like Pornhub, then um, what it would mean is that this is user-generated content. So what it would need to do is make... Uh, creators of Canadian content more discoverable. Now, the thing I should add to this is, you know, one of the explanations that the federal government has given is, you know, this is going to be sorted out at at the CRTC. They will essentially, you know, narrow some of of the regulatory targets. Um, I'm not comfortable with that particular approach. Um, You know, there's... There's no way that I can think of that is justifiable to say, well, we've just sort of loosely legislated this. We weren't really accurate with our language and can capture all kinds of things, but don't worry, the regulator will fix this and they'll narrow it. That should be set out in the legislation itself, whether it's only targeting large platforms, particular services or in remit or out of remit, whatever it is, that needs to be narrowly defined. So it brings us back to the justice minister and his assessment that th- this this does not violate charter rights. This does not pose any any sort of risk to freedom of speech or freedom of expression. So, what did you make of that assessment? Well, I thought it was wrong, and and you know I should you know explain that this is a charter statement. So, you know this the original one that was written written you know accompanied the bill at a stage where um, social media companies 
were accepted from application when it came to user-generated content. It was sort of out of scope. Um, the, the latest charter statement, or I guess explanation, is, as they stated, um, you know, their explanation was, look, we're not targeting users. So users are not broadcasters here. And so there's no real charter issue, essentially. Um, I think that's wrong, and it's wrong on several fronts. Um, for one thing, it is targeting the platforms. And so if you roll out that ball of string and you look at, well, how is this all going to be regulated? It says you, YouTube, or TikTok, or whatever it is, you are a broadcasting undertaking, and you are now going to have obligations as a broadcaster in how you treat user-generated content. And that raises a free speech issue because it's not just about the rights of users to express themselves, our right to free expression includes the right to seek and receive information as well. And this regulation structures it so it says, okay, YouTube, you're going to have to, um, you know, tweak your algorithm to ensure that, you know, the space, the YouTube environment for Canadian users is curated in a different way. You're going to have to push certain content, which means that other content just naturally then is deprioritized, right? Mm -hmm. So it changes what we get to access as a public on these platforms. And that is unprecedented. Because the thing to remind you of is, again, this is broadcasting regulation, not just internet regulation. Right. You know, I mean, there's there's the question of whether this is all workable, whether the CRTC even has the, the resources to to meaningfully regulate all of this. But that's kind of a separate question from whether we should be uh, at this point. Should we just be starting from from the drawing board here? Do you think C10 is, is salvageable at this point? You know, I'm really on the fence about it. Um, and, and the reason I say that is uh, you know, it should absolutely not go forward as long as uh, user-generated content is targeted in any way. Um, mm -hmm. That's wrongheaded. And if anyone's wondering if, you know, well, we have these huge content regulation concerns, we absolutely do. It's just not um, a matter for broadcasting regulation. That's that's yeah. the online harms legislation coming, for, you know, in a few weeks. And I think many are getting quite confused about that, that these are different regulatory species. So um, it should not proceed as long as um, user-generated contents in scope. But let's say they fix that. Should it proceed at that stage? Um, perhaps. I, You know, we, we desperately need to modernize broadcasting regulation. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly the way, you know, if we think of how young people consume media or even how we do, it's really different than it used to be. And, you know, we, we are using apps. We are using Netflix and Spotify and, and the whole environment has changed. So it's an important policy question about, well, how should we order that environment? Um, you know, or should there be certain, you know, CanCon requirements here? Should they pay into certain, you know, funds? Um, right. The reason I'm on the fence, though, is that, for example, the proposal would be that Netflix has to pay into, you know, the Canadian Media Fund and, and have CanCon requirements, but aren't necessarily, they, they don't then get the benefit of that, where they can, you know, get pools from that funding to produce Canadian content the way mm -hmm. that our legacy broadcasters would. So. So I think there's still things to tweak. I'd like to see it proceed. I'd like us to return to, uh, you know, a, a healthy policy discussion about the future of broadcasting. 
um, because at the moment everyone's just been entrenched in in these arguments yeah. of this. It's all about free speech and and anti-internet. We'll leave it there for now. I appreciate the insight uh, once again here, Dr. Laidlaw. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Bye. All right, take care. That's uh, Emily Laidlaw at the uh, University of Calgary, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law. So, yeah, she's got some big problems with Bill C-10, as do a lot of experts in this field, and for good reason, I think. You know, the moment we, we brought user-generated content into the conversation, this all went just completely off the rails. I think part of the problem in trying to salvage Bill 10, or Bill C-10 is that it's really been tainted by this. And so I think Canadians are rightly going to bristle at whatever the final version of this is just because of what we now associate with Bill C-10. Yeah, I mean, there, there was no reason ever to have user-generated content as, as part of this conversation at any level. It just, it makes no sense. And so this has been tweaked a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's still, it's still there. And that's a big problem. So we're kind of into a period of uncertainty here with regard to the Line 5 pipeline, which runs from Canada down through Wisconsin and Michigan back up into Sarnia, Ontario. Branches off into other lines, of course, that feed Ontario and Quebec with a substantial amount of energy. Michigan's governor, of course, set a deadline for that pipeline to close. That deadline came and went last week. So the pipeline for now is still operating. It's unclear where this is all headed, but obviously a shutdown would have some pretty severe consequences. There's an interesting piece this week in the National Post looking at the implications of all of this and what it means for the debate around energy policy in Canada. Is there an opportunity here for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives to speak to some of this and, and to look at areas where perhaps the Liberals have failed? Joining us to talk more about all of this is the author of that piece, Ted Morton, uh, former Alberta finance minister, energy minister. He's a fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ted Morton, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good afternoon, Rob. Uh, so we sit here today, as mentioned, I guess we're, what, about a week removed from, from this deadline. I don't know if this is posturing. I don't know if we're still headed to some kind of crisis. What's your sense, first of all? No, this will be tied up in court for at least a year or more. They can't even agree whether it should be in a state court or a federal court. In I think in everybody's informed view, it should be in a federal court. But it, this is way outside the governor of Michigan's jurisdiction. She knows that. She did it for her own political advancement. She's a young, smart, ambitious, progressive Democrat, and this for her as a way to advance her career. She, her, her ambitions go way beyond being the governor of Michigan. So in that sense, was, was this situation unavoidable, or, or how did we get here? Well, I mean, she, she precipitated it with her, uh, with her uh, statement, I think it was six months ago, saying, telling uh, Enbridge they had to shut down by uh, May 12th. Um, but the the what it exposes and what I wrote about in the National Post last week is that our failure, Canada's failure to build new export pipelines to places other than the United States, it existed prior to Justin Trudeau. It's become much worse since 2015 when he is elected. And you know, 90 per, 80% of our oil, 99% of our oil exports go to the United States. That's a very bad business model, and this shows uh, how it exposes us to the whims 
uh, and vicissitudes and the craziness of American politics right now. Not even yeah. President Biden intervened to, to supposedly, you know, he should have intervened to help his biggest trading partner and America's oldest uh, and most reliable ally. Where's where's he been? So this it highlighted uh, a a fa- policy failure that predates Trudeau, but made much worse by Trudeau. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, there's some benefit, I think, to to us being integrated with the United States. Obviously, being able to access the, the U.S. market is important. And, you know, the the networks that, that involve Line 5, being able to supply refineries in the U.S., in, into Ohio and Michigan, in Wisconsin, obviously, and coming back into uh, Canada to feed Ontario and Quebec, that kind of a network makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Well, it makes tons of sense for the United States. After the the, the two big uh, oil uh, shortages of the 1970s, 73, and then 78, when the price of oil and thus gasoline tripled not once but twice in a decade, and with huge implications for national security, the United States wanted as much oil as Canada could pump for the last 40 years. And that's why 99% of our exports go there. In the longer term, I, I am still very confident the United States will be uh, an important market and a valuable market for Canadian oil and gas. At the moment, though, uh, particularly with the Biden presidency, the uh, the uh, climate change movement, uh, and particularly the extreme wings of that movement, have picked on uh, Canadian export pipelines, Keystone being one, and now Line 5 as their target. And... Uh, Biden is a one a one term president uh, because of his age. He's seventy eight or nine already, so he doesn't have the kind of influence that a normal first term and potentially two term president would have. And uh, for better or for worse, and for Canada for the worse, he's thrown in his hat with the progressive climate change activist wing of his party. So where, where where do you see the opportunity here for the federal conservatives to to you know to speak to all of this and, and lay out a different kind of path forward? Yeah, well, as you said in your introductory remarks, half of the oil that gets to Ontario and Quebec uh, and their refineries and everybody who drives cars and the Toronto airport and the airport, all of that comes through Line Five, and so the potential. Uh, bright side of this is it could be a wake-up call for, uh, I'm not too optimistic about Quebec, but a wake-up call for Ontario uh, that energy security is an important issue for Canada. And uh, new export pipelines, particularly east-west pipelines, and you know the one we can remember most recently, Energy East, would have addressed a lot of these issues. This this type of risk wouldn't would not have been there. So, uh, and as I wrote, uh, Justin Trudeau has really no credibility, not just in Michigan, but in Washington. Um, he's already done everything that Gretchen Whitmer uh, dreams of doing with respect to killing Canadian export pipelines. And everybody in Washington, including the Biden administration, knows this. So he's he has no credibility uh, in Washington. And there's the opening for uh, uh, the conservatives and their leader. Well, it's interesting because his father was, as we recall, very big on the idea of, uh, you know, replacing imports with Canadian oil, Canadian oil supplying Canadian provinces, this national energy approach. Um, and, and we fought hard against that. How leery should Albertans be about, you know, federal leaders trying to set 
this kind of policy and you know we you know we fought for the right to export should we should we back down on that right now well we don't want to we, we don't want to fight on the right to export but the national energy program uh, pierre trudeau's initiative back in the late 70s and early 80s and the epic battles he fought with peter lougheed that was just a straight cash grab uh to win the next election uh and or more than one election uh in uh in central Canada, his, his campaign manager coined the famous slogan, screw the West and we'll take the rest. And uh, they did it then. And to a certain extent, that's been the liberal mantra uh, ever since, or realistically, in a less less explicit way, even, even, even before that. It's Alberta and Western Canada are in a very vulnerable situation. We're wealthier than Eastern Canada, but we don't have we don't have enough voters. And so a party that uh, endorses policies that move that wealth from Western Canada that's voter poor to central Canada where, you know, two-thirds of the MPs are in Ontario and Quebec, as we've experienced decade after decade, liberals can form governments with virtually no representation from the West. Well, then does that speak against Aaron O'Toole, you know, embracing this opportunity? Is, is well, it too politically risky well, for him? Well, uh, historically, it would be, but uh, I'd like to think Ontario is changing. Uh, certainly, uh, Stephen Harper, with a big assist from Jason Kenney, I might add, uh, helped uh, win a majority government there with big votes out of Ontario. Ontario is not the same Ontario that I lived in back in the 70s when I went to graduate school at the University of Toronto. There are hundreds of thousands, I, I, I'm probably way low on that, probably millions of new immigrants from all around the world who are very happy to be in Canada and who've come here for economic opportunity and their priorities are a strong economy, good healthcare systems, good schools for their kids and, and, and a strong economy, a future for their kids. Most of them don't even know about the history of Quebec and that whole part of Canadian history. And uh, I don't think uh, paying Quebec, I better be careful what I say here, I'm about to say paying <laughs> Quebec to stay in, no, in okay. Canada or always always I, I spent a year in, in 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 ottawa working for the reform alliance party and i one of the reasons i came back to alberta was that the first question that's always asked in quebec even in conservative parties is how will this play in quebec that's how frankly ottawa has been run almost since confederation the ontario that i lived in back in the 70s that was certainly the norm i think the ontario of today is different harper's victory in 2011 and look and look at the uh the uh, premier of Ontario today, Mr. Ford, yeah. uh, he's not your typical Ontario premier. So I'd like to think that that uh, there's an opportunity there for uh, O'Leary and the Conservatives, and I hope they grab it. We shall see. We'll leave it there for now. Always appreciate it. Ted Morton, thanks for joining us here today. Okay. Thank you, Rob. All right. All the best. Uh, Ted Morton, fellow with the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, of course, former Alberta Finance Minister, Alberta Energy Minister, um, yeah, I think he meant to say O'Toole. <laughs> I don't know if that's call a Freudian slip or not, but um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it'd be interesting to 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 hear from the conservative leader in terms of how he, you know, differs from the liberals when it comes to energy policy. Um, look, I'm still of the opinion that you know we we need Line Five. Let's keep it going, and you know, I think probably in the end of the day, Ted Morton's right that the Michigan governor is overstepping her bounds. You know, she's overstepping her bounds. There's a lot of political posturing going on here. Let's hope so.
And off the top here, I want to have a conversation around transfer payments, which can be a, a, um, a sore spot in Alberta. But what's interesting, though, is, you know, Alberta does receive a considerable amount in federal transfers, makes up a pretty significant portion of our revenue. But there's constantly tension between the provinces and the feds over federal transfers. And there are various transfer programs that exist. So, yes, Alberta does receive transfer payments. But is there a better way to do this? Because obviously there's the tension this all creates and there's the inefficiency of it. To have the federal government collect money and then disperse it out to the provinces. What if the provinces were the ones collecting that in the first place? New report out of the uh, HAC Business School at the University of Montreal is calling for an end to transfer payments and replacing it instead with so-called tax points. The idea being that Ottawa cancels a lot of these transfers, lowers its taxes, and then the provinces can step in and, and fill that void. So your tax rate would, would remain the same, but more of that money would be going to the province and less would be going to Ottawa. And therefore, there would be less need for Ottawa to send money to the provinces. So it sounds simple enough in, in theory. I think doing all of this would, would be complex. I think, number one, starts with the political will. But joining us to talk a bit more about why this is something that should be looked at, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Robert Gagne, Director of the Center for Productivity and Prosperity, Walter J. Summers Foundation at HEC Montreal. Robert, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. So talk a bit about it from, from your perspective here. Why is this something that, that the federal government and the provinces should take a close look at? Well, because there's this eternal debate, like you, you said, about the, the, those fiscal transfer or those uh, cash transfer for uh, mainly for health care. Uh, and uh, regularly, uh, the debate is warming, warming up. And um, but when you look at the, the, those things, I mean, they are um, fighting for our money, <laughs> in a sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the, the, the provincial government said, okay, uh, we will have the Fed to pay for part of our healthcare system, but it's not the Fed who are paying, it's us, the taxpayers who are paying, of course. So they're just fighting for, for our money. Uh, a long time ago, uh, someone somewhere decided that healthcare would be a provincial responsibility. So now, Healthcare is a huge amount of the provincial budget and, uh, and, and growing. So they need the fiscal base, they need access to fiscal base, fiscal revenues to fund that correctly. Mm -hmm. So uh, why should we send money to Ottawa and then this money is sent to not us, but our provincial government and then spend on healthcare? Why don't we just send a check to our provincial government for uh, health care? And this is our first proposition. Our second proposition is is uh, imputability or um, more uh, benchmarking, more data for the public in Canada, for the people living in this country, in order to assess if the performance of the healthcare system is adequate, uh, because we do have another system of transfer, which is not very popular in Alberta, I believe, 
which, right. which is called equalization. Yeah. Uh, equalization is doing its job. But the job of equalization is to uh, allow each province to have access to fiscal revenue or to, to funding in order to provide public service uh, which are similar in quality and quantity everywhere in the country. And we show in our report that, that equaliz- equalization is doing that perfectly. So each ASNAP province right now do have the resource to fund their public service as Ontario is doing, you know? Of course, Alberta is a little bit higher and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and Saskatchewan, but all the other provinces are at the level of Ontario. So everybody should be able to fund their system at the same level. Maybe it's not enough. So they need more resource, more funds. So that's why we should give them access to the fiscal base. At the creation of the Federation in 1867, LCARE was not an issue. Nobody was talking about that. It was not a was not important. What was important is to, was, was to develop the West with railroads and things like that. Healthcare was not important. So right now, it's the most important uh, public program in this country. So those who are responsible for it, the provinces, need the fiscal base to properly fund this program. That's very simple. And, you know, we're not doing politics. We're doing economics. Mm-hmm. And it's in, in the interest of the taxpayers and the interest of the the user of the, uh, the healthcare system to do that. But maybe not in the interest of the politician, both in the province, provincial capitals and in Ottawa. But I'm not a politician or political scientist. I'm an economist. So. Well, you're right. But I mean, there, there are politics involved, to be sure. But oh, again, course, I think there, there's course, some, but, some, some solid but, arguments to be made here. Of course, but we need to to take into account the interest of those who are funding the system, you and me, and many million other peoples, and those who are using the system. Again, you and me and millions of other people. So, right. and right now, I'm not sure that they are the center at the center of the debate. <laughs> okay, and maybe the actual system is okay for provincial politicians because guess what they don't have to to tax us but they get the money to spend not only on healthcare on different things that maybe we do, we want maybe we don't want or we don't need and and the feds but the feds i mean they're sharing the tax base with the province so they can send money to the provinces or they can offer different programs like uh, daycare, like whatever they want to do. So maybe it's a system which is serving well, serving them quite well, but maybe not in the interest of the people. So where, where, where would we see then, what's, or to, let me put it this way, what makes the most sense to transfer to the provinces in terms of taxation power? Are we talking income taxes, the GST, what would be, what would be best? The, the problem right now, because of the lack of accountability, is that we don't know if the demands from the provinces, I mean, they asked for, say what, close to $30 million, billion dollar additional for healthcare, 
Yeah. We don't know if it's uh, relevant or justified. Why is that? Because we don't have any da- relevant, uh, efficient, or let's say uh, accurate data on all our on our uh, system uh, performs. Okay, so what we did in the report is just to suggest some tax base. Let's say uh, the the. the, the the corporate income tax, or a part of the GST, or all the GST, or I mean, but the, the principle is simple: they should not uh, be in the same fiscal base, both the federal and the provincial government. So that's why we suggest some some places where the feds can go out and just leave the provinces there. And then they will tax uh, the corporation or uh, or the, with the sales tax, with the GST, uh, things that we are buying, and they will fund their healthcare system. And uh, that's it. So I think yeah. it's more interesting when their system is working well and simple than when the system is not working well and very complicated, which is the case. Actually. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there, Robert. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All the best. Uh, that is Robert Gandier at the uh, HEC uh, Business School, University of Montreal. He is uh, director of the Center for Productivity and Prosperity, one of the authors of this report, suggesting that Ottawa eliminate health and social transfers and simply pass some, some tax room on to the provinces. You know that, for example, that the, the province could cut the or the feds could cut the GST rate or cut it all together. Then the provinces step in and fill that void with their own tax. The money stays in the province. Provinces pay for health care. So who stands to benefit or, or or gain more from that change? It's it's an interesting question in terms of the politics of uh, you know being able to demand more from Ottawa or leaving the tax collection uh, to the feds. I think this has, you know, some simplicity to it, mind you. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.